welcome to episode 49 of Random Encounter, the RPG fan podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today, we have Editor-in-Chief of the Universe. Uh, I'm John. Uh, my name on our forums is John. I think you've done that joke before, dude. Oh, well. Okay. All right. And we also have the economist and the man who has a lot to talk about in terms of news and the secret world. Dave Yeager. I'm an economist now. That's exciting. Yeah. And I, I also do programming. I, I actually have a story that's completely unrelated but has to do with IST. Uh, Kimberly and I were at somewhere. Uh, I think we were at the airport. And uh, this kid asked for his mom's phone. And his little sister goes, you're not a technologist. And we thought it was hilarious at the time. And I'm at the library, uh, the Minneapolis Central Library, last week. And I see uh, a book called The Technologist's. And is, yes. yes, there is a section yeah. on our corporate website called For the Technologist. It's a real thing now. Yes. So uh, kudos to you, kid. You made up a new word. Uh, He's ahead of the curve. OK, um, so I, we bring Dave on here when we have like fun news to talk about in the video game world and lots of economic news, you know, people getting sued, things going free to play. You Otherwise, know, we, he's in his cage. Yeah. We just keep it <laughs> I'm in the nerdery with the rest <laughs> of the nerds on our calculators. Well, people keep asking why we don't have a podcast tab on the website, and I'm, I'm here wondering why. Well, I can make that happen. You're just going to have to run it past the uh, editor-in-chief first. No, it's, it, I think apparently Rob's not paying attention to the whole um, thread on our editor's forums that I'm not going to talk about here. Really? Oh, okay. I'll start paying attention to that. Whatever. Okay. So, hey. <clears throat> I hear that editor-in-chief is a really nice guy. Uh, he, he likes to give out huge raises to people. <laughs> yes, you raised from zero. <laughs> I will give you a 10,000% raise, Rob. This is why all the raises are so large. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've lost all but $47,000, Martin. You got greedy, son. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Good Simpsons references. We can do this when we got the old men of the RPG fan here, so we can like do hip, cool references that the kids won't get. <sighs> All right, that, kids. So speaking of references, uh, let's go for an X Files reference. Um, yeah, Dave, do you like the Secret World? I I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Somebody help me. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I'm I'm right there with you, Dave. Like I played, I played the beta, and I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I just, I, I you know, I like uh, Ragnar Tornquist, the, you know, the lead designer. He's made a couple of really good adventure games, uh, you know, with Funcom. But I, I don't get this game. Like not in terms of like the story or anything like that. But I don't get what I'm supposed to be doing most of the time when I'm in the game. Well, dude, you're supposed to be killing zombies, isn't that? They... I guess. I mean, like in the first ten minutes of the thing, I thought this is like a new, exciting, you know, oh, you're 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 going to find a secret world, hence the name, and then you've got a zombie apocalypse, like defending a town, and I'm like, wait a minute, I've played this game, and I, and half the time, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I need to be held, I don't need my hand held, you know, all the time, like a lot of MMOs do, but holy cow, some kind of clue of where I'm supposed to go next to be helpful. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing. I I could just be missing something. Could just be me. Well, I I think it's weird. Uh, I know the game is designed where it's like they want you to go looking for stuff outside the game. But I think the the issue with that, it's like, okay, go find this thing on the internet, and you throw it into Google, and you get a Thoughtbot or whatever the equivalent is for uh, 
for the secret world. And it's like, well, I have the answer now. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't want to criticize one of the things we try not to do right is criticize a game for, for what it is, you know, for being, for trying to do something and then doing it, you know, the secret world, clearly you're thrown into a situation where your character in the first 30 seconds of the game awakens and like, you know, has special powers. He didn't know he, he didn't have before and is seeing all these new things and is confused. And the game definitely imparts that to you because I'm confused and I'm still confused. I don't know what the heck is going on. I don't want to take credit for it because the guys on giant bomb said it when they were talking about uh, the secret world. And I think John really hit on something there. When you have these things like the, these Morse code puzzles or different things going on in the secret world, you go online to figure out the answer. And what ends up happening is, you know, you, you're either going to use the internet the way that they want you to, which is like find out a little bit about Morse code and then use it to apply to the game, or you're just going to go to a forum that says, here's the answer to this puzzle at this section of the secret world that you're in right now. That's a really excellent point. And I don't understand why they didn't just, maybe because it was too much of an undertaking, but I don't understand why they didn't just do the faux internet thing from like Grand Theft Auto 4 or... You know what they could have done, honestly, and it's not difficult to put together. If they had put together a wiki that could only be edited, you know, that, that was monitored by people where you couldn't create new entries. It just had stuff about stuff in the game. But so what you're saying is that you could only access the wiki from... Uh, no, no, no. I'm saying you could access the wiki outside of the game. I'm just saying new entries could only be created by developers. Right. Then you don't break down that wall of I'm on the internet looking at stuff about Secret World while playing Secret World and pretending to do research in Secret World. I, I think that's a good response, but couldn't people still go around? I mean, there, there would still be forums on, you know... Well, like, absolutely, but you can't stop that. That, you know, there's always going to be game facts, but... Right. you can... But, but if you create this environment that's specific to the game... But what I'm saying is that they should have gone one step further. I mean, in, in Secret World, you can literally bring up a browser in the game to surf the internet. They should have just made their own internet with like 30 or 40 websites just devoted to the Secret World the way Rockstar did with Grand Theft Auto 4. And I think you would have you would have then still had that emergent angle. And then like you guys are saying, you could still go around it if you really wanted to. I think, but you I could think have, the, both of those solutions could work. I think the bigger problems with the game – you know, are the game are, are almost the things it was trying to do, you know, which is really unfortunate, at least so far from my play experience. Uh, you know, like the combat is <laughs> kind of wonky, you know, but they, they were trying to make it so you couldn't, you know, you have to move around. You can't just stand there and watch animations like you do in most MMOs. But I can't figure out, you know, the spacing half the time. And, you know, if you get any kind of little blip of lag, like the things up in your face when it wasn't a second ago. Uh, it, I don't understand what the because I have no context for anything. I don't know what the skill trees do, you know, which is fine. I guess hang on to the points. But I mean, like, it, if you're going to have a system like that, you need to be real clear about like, you know, what you're putting the points into and how that makes you better and things like that. And they have a levelless system, so the points are everything, you know, in these trees. And so if I put something in a tree and I'm like, oh, I thought it did that, but there's no information, and you know. It, Precisely because they're trying to build this environment where everything is your uh, environment of discovery and you're discovering these things. But I, I just feel like a little bit more guidance for new players would really go a long way in the secret world. I would agree. I would agree. And I, I think the idea of making this levelless game where it's all about skill points is, is a really novel idea. I think they, they want to get 
people away from this, you know, race to level 80 or race to the level cap that we're seeing in so many MMOs. It's a noble effort. And, you know, maybe there's something to be said for that. But if I, I felt the same way, Dave, like I took one look at that skill tree and I was like, holy yeah. God, you know, I, I agree 100 percent with you on your point. Noble is the right word here. You know, like this is a noble effort and they're trying to do new things with a tired space, you know, but I'm just not sure it worked. <laughs> and like, that's kind of the shame of it. I mean, I'm going to I'm definitely going to give it another try, uh, you know, kind of with a more open mind. But I, that first the, the, the first several times I went in there and kept picking up, kept, it just I just there's just too much confusion. Yeah, I'm. I agree with you. I mean, I wanted to like it. I, I definitely wanted to get in there, but then just the combat and the nature of the game in it. You know, I, I hate to do this because, you know, it, it, everybody makes fun of the whole, oh, it's 2012 and everything needs to have zombies in it. And we've kind of been stuck in this rut since like 2008 when it comes to zombies. But like, I like zombies. I think it can be done well. I love World War Z. I love Undead Nightmare and Red Dead Redemption. Huge left for dead player. I like zombies. But when I'm playing an MMO, I don't expect the first thing to happen is they send me to an area where Bruce Campbell essentially tells me that I need to go kill a lot of zombies for the next 10 hours. That was really disappointing. That was a disappointing moment because, you know, they're, they're all these weird concepts are being introduced. I mean, right away, like you have this weird guy that looks like a train, an old-timey train conductor, and you're going around in the the teleports and you come out and you're in a zombie game that you've played before. Yeah. I don't know. I think keeping that as an optional area would have been better. And, and the other problem that you have is that the game kind of locks you in there and you're kind of stuck. And, uh, you know, this is me. I I get a chance to uh, drop the fact that we have an interview coming up and I should have done that at the beginning of the podcast, but we have an interview coming up with uh, Mike over at arena net where he's talking to us a little bit more about guild wars two. But one of the big things that shocked me during the last guild wars two beta weekend was I just said, you know what? I'm playing as a char and I don't want to be in the char starting area anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. And within two minutes, I could go to one of the other starting areas and pick up quests and start doing things. Now, you you could argue that that prevents your character from feeling unique in the world, but I also like the fact that I could immediately feel like I was part of a bigger world, and maybe if, like, Steven and I weren't playing the same race, I could still meet up really fast. The Secret World kind of railroads you right into this zombie area to start the game, and I don't know if there's anything else to be had in that game i mean there could be a game where like all of a sudden you're in you know happy cloud land with care bears and i would really like to play that but i can't do it right now right i'm stuck in this one area and i cannot stand that it's like the old grand theft auto problem of being on like the first island in the game and you can't leave yeah Yeah. i totally agree and as soon as you get as soon as you're in like yet another grind you know killing zombies this time and running around and you know then your lag spiking and because yeah. I have to move and the animations won't take care of it. I mean, this is why MMOs did this and did this for years is they have you, you stand there and the, you know, you push the occasional button precisely to prevent the effect of lag spikes. But, you know, I, I feel bad. I don't I'm not saying I'm trashing this game like, you know, I'm going to try it again and it, I, hopefully it goes better, you know, with but you hate to you hate to just bag on them when they're really trying to do something new, you know. Yeah, yeah. So now uh, I have two questions for all of us. Uh, first off, and I, I, I don't want to give away what we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast, but uh, how long before it goes free to play? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really not giving away anything, Rob. Oops. Uh, how long, guys? 
Ugh. I I don't know. I think that that I, I, I uh, different than other MMOs. I don't know how you monetize this one. I maybe I, I don't know. It doesn't uh, seem like they have a they don't have a system built around it. At least not one that I could see. So I, I think John's point is definitely valid. Uh, how do you make something free to play that doesn't really have any free to play hooks? Definitely in their plans. I know that Ragnar Tarnquist talked about that, that like he figured at some point in the game's lifespan it would need to go free to play because that just seems to be the way that most MMOs go now. But boy, if, I, if you had made me give an over under, I'd say six months. I mean, I just can't imagine that Funcom has the type of that this game and that this company have the type of, you know, built in rabid fan base that something like EA and, you know, well, that that's the curious thing is, is you, you say EA, EA is this is an EA partners game. I wonder who's who's footing the servers. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so then the next question I have is, uh, it, it's kind of off topic of Secret World, but it's more in MMO news, because I I don't know anybody on the site that's playing it right now. Um, Dragon Quest X. Oh, how could anyone be playing it? Is it even out in Japan yet? Yes, it's out in Japan. Oh, well then. It's been out for over a week. Um, and, you know, I've, I've checked out some videos online, and that's a very different kind of MMO than what we're used to, and I don't think that's coming over to America. You know, I would love to play it since Nintendo does such a great job making sure that their consoles are region-free. Oh, wait. Oh. But the uh, if you watch the videos for Dragon Quest X, and again, I can't really talk too much about it because I, I haven't had too much experience. I, I, I've not played the game, as John would point out. But, like, uh, I've listened to a couple podcasts about it. A4 Play did a wonderful uh, hour-long section on Dragon Quest X. I watched, you know, maybe 30 minutes worth of videos. And it's a... Uh, it's a single-player MMO. It's very much Dragon Quest, where you get into random encounters, and it has turn-based combat, and... Yeah. Now, I have a question for you, Rob, since you asked me a free-to-play question. Will we actually see Dragon Quest X in North America on the original Wii? No. <laughs> we, I, we, I don't think so, either. <laughs> that game is not coming out on the Wii. Now, there is a Wii U version of it coming out, which I think has a much better chance of coming out in Japan... Uh, in America, sorry. Now, I think Square Enix's best option, and I don't know how much they can do it because I don't know how much uh, Nintendo has involvement in this product. I don't understand why it's not on PC. I... Um, you know what? It, based on on the, the last few Dragon Quests have been very heavily Nintendo has a hand in it. True. I so, I just I don't see how I, you release an MMO in this day and age without it being on PC. Think that I actually am going to answer your question, which is the PC is not that big in Japan. Okay. But now wasn't Final Fantasy 11, Final Fantasy 14, PSO 2. Now, let's let's start from the beginning. Final Fantasy uh, 11 released originally for what platform in Japan? PC. No. Um To the wiki. <laughs> the PC version came out first in North America. But I am almost certain the PlayStation 2 version launched first in Japan. I'm, I'm interested to find out now. Now, now. now all the listeners are hearing typing. <laughs> We're all trying to figure it out. 
I, I know that you're right on the America thing. I, I know. Release date, Japan, May 16th, 2002 for PlayStation 2, November 7th, 2002, Japan for PC. Okay, so we got it in. Never questioned the editor-in-chief. Okay, no, he was right. He was right. I'm, so, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, <laughs> so now we got it on PC in America first, and then it came out on PS2. And I definitely get what you're saying, John, is that Nintendo has had a lot of involvement. Dragon Quest Nine, Dragon Quest Ten. I mean, the reason a lot of people bought Wii's was for Dragon Quest. 10 i mean they that game had been in development for a long time for Wii, but i think if you want to bring that game over to america i i think you bring it out on pc that's what i'm saying is that if that game is going to come out in america it's going to come out on pc i can't disagree with you more there is absolutely zero chance of that game ever coming out on pc well, uh, hey, editor-in-chief knows more than me, but I, I, <laughs> I, I just find it stupid that that game is not on PC. I, I don't get it. I feel like you're leaving money on the table. See, I, here's the thing with Dragon Quest. Now, here's the thing, Rob. <laughs> Dragon Quest is always going to be focused on Japan. Final Fantasy might be focused more on the West now because it's it's more popular in the West than it is in Japan. But Dragon Quest is as Japanese as Hanafuda or, you know, soba noodles. Like, it's a Japan thing. Sure. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm intrigued by it from what I saw of it. I It's one of those games that I want to play. I don't necessarily know if I'm going to like it. I think it, it's very it's very anti MMO and a lot of the things that it's doing. So I, I don't know how well it will play to American audiences. I'd say there's there's a chance of it coming out on Wii U in America. I don't know how big of a chance that is. But we talked about on the last show, like I don't understand why Square Enix isn't talking about this game and releasing in other territories. They have said nothing that we don't know if we're getting it over here. And I feel like. You know, we've gotten how many Dragon Quest games in America? Have they all been released at this point? You know, there was a big push for Dragon Quest Nine. Dragon Quest Eight is one of my favorite games on the PS2. We're just not going to hear anything about it. They're just not going to bring it over here. I get what you're saying is that it's a huge, huge thing in Japan. It's a cultural milestone in Japan. But I just don't understand why, we, why we're not even talking about bringing it over to America. Because it's a Wii game? Well, that would definitely be it. We don't really have a Wii U uh, announced date for the game. We don't. Hey, when it's coming. Yeah, we we don't. Um, my guess would be soon. I can't imagine that they're going to do too much different. That's the square we're talking about. Yeah, we're just going to up-res it. <laughs> That's about it. I, uh, dude, they're not going to make a whole new engine for that game. Like, it's just going to be up-res. It's going to look pretty. It's going to look like Okami HD on the PS3. That would be a good game. Well, that's being made. I know. I know. I'm really excited for it. Hi. Hi. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather, so. That's okay. You've been moving stuff, and we understand, so. All right, so Dragon Quest X. I I would like to hear about it. Hey, Square Enix, can I hear about this game that I might actually pay money for? Would Can I hear it, please? Can Can I hear anything about this game? Shut up and take my money. Although I don't think I would give money for a subscription. I I don't uh, that's the that's the anti subscription model in me, foreshadowing mm-hmm. foreshadowing foreshadowing. Oh <laughs> Rob, you're the worst foreshadower yeah. ever. They're never gonna figure it out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, let's talk about Walking Dead. Okay. Walking Dead's freaking awesome. I think that the guy should go back in the house. 
think the guy should go back in the house. I, I forgot. I don't watch the television show. I know that, that there's the meme where the one guy never is in the house where he's supposed to be. The, oh, the, the kid or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I, I read the comic. Not that I haven't. I watched, uh, I think, like four episodes of the TV show. Didn't really dig it. But the game, definitely digging it. Yeah, uh, so Walking Dead, based off of the comic book of the same, I'm sorry, graphic novel of the same name. Uh, so there's no, there there are connections with the TV show. Uh, one of the characters from the TV show and the graphic novel actually does show up in the first episode of the game, um, and I really like it. It's it's a telltale uh, point and click adventure essentially. So you're controlling a character that's in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. And you're going around and interacting with characters and forming alliances and stuff. And it's it's got a little bit of the Mass Effect conversation system into it, um, where you're making choices in the game. Some of the moral choices are very deliberate and very much in the vein of why would anyone choose the other option? But then the best ones put you into really nasty situations where you have to make a split second decision. And I, I gotta say, for a point and click adventure game, I really have helped had like that gut reaction like holy crap what do i do right now and i, I can't say that about a lot of games and I really I, like that. i've only played part of the first episode of the game but i feel like this is kind of an evolution of telltale's episodic content and probably the best implementation of it yeah i would agree with that i mean i i dig the tell i dig telltale games they do some neat stuff i think that episode one on the and i'm playing it on the ipad you know and it's by iPad standard, it's really, and uh, you know, it looks great. You know, like some of the Telltale games, like Back to the Future, I think kind of looks a little wonky. I mean, they went for a real cartoony type look there, but it was was a fun game. I, the Walking Dead game looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I just like the interactions with the characters. I, I like the fact that everybody feels real. I mean, you have the standard archetypes of any zombie apocalypse. Sure fiction i mean you have the the one guy who's just being a dick for no good reason and should probably <laughs> and should probably just be nice to people you know you you have uh you know of course a child that you want to take care of but they put you in some um, really cool parts one of the best parts about uh episode two without going into too much spo- spoiler territory is at the very beginning of episode two you're given uh a ration of food and you have to decide who to give food to and that puts you in a really cool position. Now, whether or not that has a huge ramification on the game, it's kind of hard to tell right now because it is being released in an episodic nature, and we we're only at episode two. I think episode three, we might have an announcement about its release date by the time this podcast goes up. So I'm interested to see where they go with this, but I am much more engaged with this title than I have been with a lot of games in the past. And yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, how many times do you finish – game up and then you want to go right back and try it again i mean those are kind of the rare games right i mean i definitely did it with this you know just to try the other choices and see what happened it's pretty sharp pretty sharp little game and i think uh you know once we have once all the episodes are out we'll really know how well they pulled off the do your choices really matter that much you know we'll find out you know, at the end, at the end, on. you get to choose blue or green. Well, exactly. <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> it, funny that you've brought that up because I have had no desire to replay this game. I feel very comfortable in the choices that I made, and 
okay, I it, it may seem like I'm about ready to dig on David Cage right now, and I. <laughs> oh, I, I know. You, Why did I know that's exactly where you were going to go? But all of David Cage's highfalutin talk about heavy rain, and you should only want to play it once, and it should be an experience that you feel. Heavy rain felt so artificial to me, and so stupid, and so inane. And The Walking Dead, I am very comfortable with every choice that I've made in that game. I'm not sitting here going, wow, I really wish I could replay that section because I couldn't put my hands into like the vice-like grip in order to get through this stupid section, or I didn't think that the game would respond this way. The choices have all felt so natural and so ingrained in the characters that I don't feel the need to go back and go, Wow, I didn't expect that to happen. I'm not having the response I had to, to get away from David Cage. I'm not having the response that I had with some of my decision making in Mass Effect 3, for example, where I was sitting there going, uh, I didn't think that was going to happen based on that decision. I didn't want that to happen. Why did that happen? Reset that area because I don't want to pick that option. I've had none of that with Walking Dead so far because everything feels natural. I haven't had that. I haven't had that either. I, I, when, uh, I like to go back. I w- wanted to go back and just see how it played out because the writing was tight. You know, I thought I, I just kind of wanted to see how they handled, you know, the uh, how they handled getting you to the same endpoint. Yeah. You know, with some of the other choices was really the only reason I wanted to go back. And, you know, the uh, for people who liked Heavy Rain, like me, I think it's great. You know, I mean, so uh, your your enjoyment of Heavy Rain will not influence your enjoyment of Walking Dead. No, no, no. And yeah, I, really, I, really both really a pretty pretty solid little title. I'm not bagging on Heavy Rain, but what I'm saying is that I feel like Heavy Rain really suffers from the the standard problem with choice in video games. It's the we talked about it before. The front mission 3, do you go to the mall or do you not go to the mall actually determines the entire nature of your storyline, a stupid inane choice that didn't seem to have any impact on anything as suddenly throw the game into a curveball. And I don't want to play a game like that. And then I I felt like Heavy Rain, maybe not to that dramatic of a step, but I felt like my choices in Heavy Rain were railroading me down decision-making that I didn't want to go. Meanwhile, Walking Dead, now granted, it's only episode two, but Walking Dead feels much more natural. The writing is much simpler. It, it's not – when I say simpler, I mean that it it's – it's transparent. I see where I'm going to be going based on my decisions rather than, oh, I'm going to choose milk or juice, and that's going to determine whether or not I become a revolutionary or if I join up with a totalitarian government. Right. Well, I mean, it remains to I be like seen. I, I like I like milk, too. So that – well, there's your choices, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what if I don't want to choose? Can't I choose both? Well, in Walking Dead, you can actually just choose ellipsis. <laughs> that's true that's true there's a lot of ellipses you can just choose to not say a word and <laughs> and i i feel very uh, my connection with the character of lee i'm playing lee like a nice guy because i want to be a nice guy in this game i'm not choosing the red option of like infamous or uh or choosing like the dickhead response in dragon age just because i want to i actually care about this character i mean lee immediately meets a young child in the game and like my fatherly instincts take over right there, and I want to be nice to this kid, but I'm talking to her like an adult. I'm not like downplaying any of my past or anything in the game. It, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, like you said, they're 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 cheap tricks. We've seen them before, you know, in the zombie universe, in this in this type of thing, and you know, they it works. They make it work, and the, the you know, 
these are tropes for a reason, as uh, I believe John has said before. You know, like they, there's a reason these things. There's a reason we see some of these same things a lot because they work. You know, yeah. it's a good game. Definitely recommend it. I I would say that uh, you know, in episode four or five, we're probably going to run into a military camp, and the the military guys are probably going to be bad. Possibly. Because uh, I'm so that's actually what killed 28 Days Later for me. I, I adore that movie until the third act because it just becomes every other zombie trope ever and it doesn't do anything new or interesting with it. And that's where that really falls apart. So I'm worried about where Walking Dead will go, but right now my investment is there. I'm really excited for the next episode and I, I'm really enjoying it. I feel like this is delivering on a lot of promises about making decisions in video games that matter and decisions that make you feel like a real person in that scenario. Now, it should be noted that gameplay-wise, there isn't a whole heck of a lot here. Yeah. I mean, so... It, but the focus is clearly on uh, the storytelling aspect yep. and the decision aspect. It's but step- it should be noted that, like, for people who are interested in, you know, anything in resume, there, there's not a whole lot of gameplay here. You know, there's kind of some exploratory stuff and, you know, pick this thing up, give that thing to that guy. It's about the extent of it. But It's a step up from most graphic novels, uh, from most graphic adventure games, but it's a step down from, like, 999 where you— right put into like a puzzle room and you really have to solve it this is like dave's saying like you pick up a piece of wood and you go over and build a swing and then go over and talk to this character now that you've built this swing but the focus is on the choices and about the dialogue between characters it's about a million times better than uh their last game the jurassic park one why was that so bad? I didn't play it. Like I don't like it's 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 just kind of generic and you really don't do much. Like your choices don't matter as much. I've only played through part of episode 1, but it's just like there's no impetus for me to play the game. I do do they play the music? You know, the da na na na. Oh, it's it's got all the the, the classic uh stuff from Jurassic Park. Okay, that's almost worth the price of admission right there. Oh, not really. What is that? Oh, okay. If you want to listen to the music from Jurassic Park, you just buy the Jurassic Park soundtrack. Watch the movie again because it's awesome. It is awesome. I got to watch that again in the theater. Like uh, our uh, local movie tavern does, like the uh, the re-releases of old movies. I got to see Jurassic Park in the theater for the first time. That was that was cool. You know, the, my wife's favorite video game is that terrible Jurassic Park shooter game, the co-op shooter game that you can see in the arcade. Like if you go to like Dave and Buster's or something. God, there are a lot of terrible life. That's all (laughs) she ever wants to play. This game has got to be, you know, I don't even know how old it is at this point, but, but it's in every arcade ever. It is. It is. We have to play it every time. Oh God, no more. (laughs) Well, that in the star Wars game, I actually went to a Dave and Buster's for the first time, uh, at the end of the last school year. And I was kind of amazed by how much of Dave and Buster's was just taking video games and putting them in arcade form. Like there was a kiosk for like rock band. Yeah. Yeah. Hero. I was really like, dude, where's my Simpsons arcade game? Like, where is that? Like, on your Xbox. Well, yes, but it, there's something about playing that in an arcade or like the six-person X-Men game. I on your Xbox. My Xbox, but I want to play it in <laughs> arcade with that super large cabinet. Or what about the old wrestling games at uh, arcades? You guys remember those? Like, you know what? There, there was a uh, – we, we had uh, WrestleMania at the arcade at our college, oh. and no one ever played it, but – the the little screen had a slit at the top, and we would fling pennies into it. <laughs> so we See, figured, so it's a game. 
So that was really the only use that WrestleMania machine got. But <laughs> we 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 figured that we put at least twenty bucks into of pennies into it over the course of four years. My buddy actually had that WrestleMania game in his basement, and we used to play that all the time. That ah, that was such a good game. But yeah, you go to a Dave and Buster's now. It's just like a but like at one point I saw um was it Fruit Ninja? I think oh I- yeah. Ninja at a date. They got Infinity Blade in there now, like on big old touch screens and everything. <laughs> yes. Whatever. Like, where is my? What, what was the old Sega Genesis cabinet that would like rotate and whatnot? Yes, what, I know what you're uh, talking about. Where you like sat down in the thing and. Right before uh, Robert Patrick chases after John Connor in uh, Terminator 2, he's playing it, and uh, Butnick from uh, Salute Your Shorts like sends him on his way. You guys remember that? Yes. Okay. See, I'm making as many old people references as I can because the yeah. kids get it. Buttnick, salute your shorts. Good, good show. Good show. Donkey Lips. You guys remember Donkey Lips? Yes. I like I've, salute your shorts. That's the only thing I remember from that show. Were you a salute your shorts kid or a hey dude kid? I watched both. Okay. Okay. But I can't. I have no. I really have no significant memories of either show. Uh, salute your shorts was a good show. I, I liked it. Okay, so Walking Dead is pretty good. Jurassic Park, apparently not so much. Why didn't we cover Jurassic Park? Did we cover Jurassic Park? I think no one, just no one ever reviewed it. I've got a copy of it. Nobody wanted to play it? Well, no, no. Like, I got a copy of it much later, but I I think just it wasn't on anybody's radar. So, Dave, you were also playing a uh, another game, uh, another, another game that you uh, got back into, a game that you uh, seemed to like a little bit. I like how you just totally glossed over the game. <laughs> I, I just lost you for a sec, John, there. What'd you say? I said, I like how you totally just glossed over the fact that I wanted to talk about Persona 4 Arena. Oh, no, I was I was giving Dave a chance to talk. If you want to talk about... Dave, Dave just talked about Secret World. Yeah, but he was... I was going to say, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Chief. See, I know, how to def- I know how to defer to authority here. He was going to talk about a uh, particularly awesome game. What game was that, Dave? I don't know. What game was it? Well, it wasn't Diablo 3, but it started with a D. <laughs> Star Wars: The Old Republic started with a D. <laughs> Never... What are we talking about here? David started playing Dark Souls again. Never mind. Oh, 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 yes. Okay, Got, well, of uh, course I yeah, should know that. No, we're to- we're not having that conversation now. <laughs> all right, all right. You know what? Get back to me in like a month on that when I finally get farther than uh, I did last time. <laughs> Don't go the wrong direction at <laughs> the beginning of that game, otherwise you're gonna run into the friggin' skeletons. <laughs> it, it's too late. Why does everybody go down there? <laughs> it's too late for that. <laughs> like, I'm glad I didn't. I, uh, just reading everybody's previews about that game, I knew oh, enough not to go there. All right, so are we going to talk about Persona 4 Arena? Are, why are we covering this? It's a fighting game. We're not, but okay. we can talk about it on the podcast. All right, so how is it? It's good. All right. If you, li- if you like Blaze Blue, it, Bla- Blaze Blue, it's it's pretty similar in style. You know, it's, it's Arc System Works. Um, really what I want to talk about is the story mode, which if you're going into this looking for like additional Persona 4 story, you're going to come away disappointed. Um, it's really kind of generic, uh, fighting game story just fleshed out. Like the entire story mode takes place in like your character's head, like they're self narrating, like it's the, the wonder years. Oh God. So it's like it's it's really not very good. And it's not like there's interesting things going on either. It's it's just kind of like, oh, there's somebody here and we're in the the TV again, except now there's a tournament 
and we have to fight each other, but we don't know why. We all know Yukiko would be Winnie Cooper. Yes. We all I'm, fight- I'm fighting Yukiko right now. Well, well, it's funny because when you bring up the story mode in that game, I immediately think about the uh, Mortal Kombat story mode. And, and you know what? I think had they done what the new Mortal Kombat did... It would be great because the new Mortal Kombat story mode is freaking awesome. I love the fact I, I, I got pretty far in that story mode and then I stopped after Jax and Johnny Cage got into a fight after just arguing. They just got pissy with each other and then just beat the snot out of each oh, other. Was, that, oh, I love was, that story. <laughs> I love that story mode. It's so stupid and cheesy. It's great. It, it's got a campy quality to it. Yeah. There's, there's well, a, I, I, to the audience. Yeah, our, our, I, I'm actually not talking about the the quality of the story itself, but rather it's it's presentation and the way that it's set up, where your well, story mode takes you through all the characters and it has one big overarching story. Yeah. And in this one, you so you you start off and you only choose. There's 13 or 14 characters in the game. When you start off, you can only choose one of four characters. You can choose main character, who's who's named you. Uh, in the game, because that was what they named him in the anime or the the manga or whatever. So you got Yu, Yukiko, Yosuke, or Chie, and the more characters you play as, the more story modes you unlock. But the story modes are pretty much all the same, except from the viewpoint of a different character. It's, it's not like you're getting these these distinct stories. You're getting little bits and pieces every time you play through a story mode. And because they're, they've got this like visual novel set up, it's not like playing arcade mode where it's like, OK, we have 10 seconds of, you know, exposition and then a battle and then 10 seconds of exposition and another battle. You spend five or 10 minutes between battles just kind of reading. That's what kind of killed Blaze Blue for me. Uh, two things killed Blaze Blue. I, I picked it up and I, I really liked the combat in it, but it. God, that game was complicated. I mean, anytime a game has to come with a DVD explaining how it works, you, you know you've you've got. Well, Blaze, Blaze Blue, much like Persona 4 Arena, is very easy to play initially because you can button mash, and then if you really want to learn how to play the game, it really has a lot of depth. Um, I want to uh, to I just started a character story mode so I can read to you a little bit of the fantastic story that's in this game. Oh boy. The second homeroom's over, I get the hell out of there and go home. I can't stick around school when there's something super important I gotta do. Pretty sure I can run all the way to the shopping district without stopping if I force myself. Let's see. I really hope that Zach can, like, dub in some, like, beatnik music in there when you're (laughs) you're doing that. I think we need to have... We need to have a regular portion of this show where John reads video game dialogue. Not now, Mom. I don't have time today. I'm busy. Ah, oh, Kanji, that boy is always a handful. And then it goes back to himself um, narrating his life. Yeah, I would much prefer the Mortal Kombat story mode, honestly. Oh, well. Um, yeah, so that's uh, Persona 4 Arena. Also, what's strange is, like, I, I, it didn't really seem like this in uh, in Persona 4, but, like, all the characters have really kind of, like, obsessed love for the main character. Even the guys? I'm playing as Kanji right now. He's like, I gotta make this cool present for you, senpai. Oh, well. Maybe they're playing into the fact that the, the main character in the game is kind of the one that all the social links link up to because he's the main character. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, aside from that, I mean, the, the, it's a solid fighter. So if you're a fighter fan, 
you know, there is absolutely no reason that you shouldn't snag this game. And much like you would expect from any Arc System Wars game, if you want additional colors, you can pay real dollars for it. God. <sighs> All right. Any other games to talk about? I only played a little bit of Darksiders. So if we're going to talk about games that aren't RPGs, oh. I played some Darksiders. Yeah, we'll talk about Darksiders, I'm sure, when, when the, the RPG comes out. The the new Darksiders 2 with loot. Yeah, I really hope they make the combat better. I I don't see what the issue with the combat was. It played pretty much like Zelda. Well, it, it's... Well, and Zelda's never had good combat. I mean, it's, it's a Zelda-type game. So the original Darksiders is a Zelda-type game. It's, you know, got a, basically an overworld. You go into dungeons, you find a tool, you use that tool to get through the dungeon, and you use that tool to beat a boss, and then you never use the tool again. Um, so it is, it, it's, it's like a Zelda light. It doesn't have the, the majesty of Zelda or whatever you want to call it, but, like, you can tell that they tried to make the combat a bigger part of the game experience because, you know, this this game came out right before Bayonetta and God of War 3. It was in that uh, 2010 period of, like, the heavy-hitting action-adventure games. And its combat just does not hold up. It's just button-mashy. It's, I think, uh, Yahtzee on Zero Punctuation, he was like, in order to play this game, you just need to hit square, square, square. And if you want to get really technical, square, square, and then square again after a second wait. Like, that's all there is to the combat, and it it just never goes anywhere. It's it's flighty. It doesn't feel very good. Steven said that the sequel has better combat, so I'm interested with that, but when I was playing the game, when I was playing the original Darksiders, it, it feels like a poor man's Zelda, but since we don't get Zelda games very often, people kind of are okay with that. And it, it was fine. It's like a 7. It's like a 7 or a 6. It's okay. More to the point, I, I played that as a palate cleanser because uh, Nocturne beat the living crap out of me, and I didn't want to play it anymore. I didn't I'm have... fine then. I can't play. I, I actually wanted to go back and play a bunch of PlayStation Two RPGs, but I can't because my PlayStation Three is sitting in a Sony warehouse for repair somewhere. Ouch! Are you getting a sixty gig back? They they should be sending me my unit back repaired. Oh wow! What happened to it? Yellow light of death. Wow, uh, they told me that they, they would try to send me back that unit repaired, and then they didn't, so I lost all my saves, and then... Oh, I I had a 250-gig hard drive in mine, which I when I sent it into repair, I took out and put in the original totally empty hard drive. Uh, John, do you not remember my rant over this whole thing? You can't put that 250-gig back into any other PlayStation 3 than your PlayStation 3. No, I understand. Okay. I'm, I'm just letting you know, you might have lost all your game saves. When it, they told me that... Well, I, I have just about everything on PlayStation Plus Cloud save anyway, so... Oh, okay, so then you're good. Uh, I tried to... Uh, we don't need to go into that. Uh, tune into a previous episode of uh, Random Encounter where I just complained about Sony customer service. I don't want to do it again. I'm too happy right now with so many good games coming out. I don't want to think about bad things. There you go. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to I'm going to be positive right now. So like let's talk about the old republic. Shall <laughs> Speaking of positive, right? <laughs> I'm going to be real positive right now. So <laughs> so we've talked before about how the old republic, you know, when it falls below a million subscribers, it might go free to play. Yeah. Well, so then that, so that <laughs> happened. <laughs> OK, so the, the old republic in November is uh, going free to play uh, levels one through 50 are going to be free. And then it, it, I, November, I was just, I, I thought it was the fall. Uh, I think November is the official date. Pretty sure. Yep. He's, he's clicking away. Going to try to prove me wrong again. We'll figure it out. Uh, yeah, I, I was like, I was just looking at this yesterday. 
So apparently you're going to play the game free to play and uh or you can spend money to get space bucks apparently. Yeah, basically. The cartel coins aka space bucks. Space bucks. You know what? This is where all the money this is where the real money for the movie is made. Merchandising. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and now I I don't want to take uh Dave's credit, so Dave, you can explain how cuz I I said to Dave before we started recording that I am not a good barometer for this because I don't spend money on free-to-play stuff. I don't spend money on hats. I'm not like John. I'm not a sheep. I will not spend money on color. I don't palettes. spend money on hats. I bought colors for Persona, damn it. Okay. Yeah. So that huge, huge difference. Huge difference. Yeah, uh, massive. So now, how does so now? So I'm not a good representation of how this game's going to make money. So explain, economist. Explain. All right. how this is going to make money. So. One of the interesting things about working at RPG Fan and, you know, interacting on the boards at RPG Fan and even, you know, doing things like this podcast is a lot of times we're in like a bit of an echo chamber because we are, you know, part of a certain segment of a fan base. You know, there's certain games we like. We tend to be a little more on the hardcore side for our RPGs. But the best selling, most profitable games on planet Earth, they're all free to play. Shocking as this may be, right, Zynga, for crying out loud, put themselves had a 47% profit margin last year. Uh, you know, a lot of these MMOs in Japan, you know, they're free to play. Uh, one of the things that was interesting when I was at E3 was talking to the Age of Wushu folks, which should be coming up soon. Another MMO that has been doing bang up business in China uh, had you know millions and millions of uh, dollars made in the first couple weeks just in uh, you know buying hats, as uh, Rob put it. These are these are all the most profitable types of games in the world, and one of the things in the Western market, our market, is that if free-to-play games tend to be crappy compared to games that you pay for, and so the stigma attached to them is that if I don't have to pay for this, it probably stinks, and it, so much so that even the Age of Wushu people, getting back to that, what the, one of the things they were talking about doing was instead of making the game free to play in the U.S., they were talking about slapping a price tag and putting a digital box together because they thought that would be a better – they would sell more copies of the game and people wouldn't look at it like it was junk, even though their model everywhere else is free to play. So I think what Star Wars is going to be able to do here is – I'm not sure that Star Wars, it's hard to know without like access to the numbers and everything like that. We have the subscriber numbers and, you know, they're not super great anymore. Um, but we also know we have a general kind of ballpark idea of like how much the game supposedly cost. I think the idea is if they slowly, if they go free to play, they might get to the point where they'll at least break even, you know, over the course of the next year if the game, you know, can survive that long. And I think it probably can, you know, under a free under a free-to-play model so I, I think that's basically where they're going with this like now i'm kind of unclear john you probably maybe you know more a little bit more about this about what they're going to do with the cartel coin model i think there's going to be you know i i'm fairly certain it's gonna be like every other mmo out there where you can buy uh equipment and uh i i don't know there, lots of games do it where the things that you can buy with real money are just um visual things so you can get a pet or you can make your armor look like Michael Jackson or whatever. 
Right. I actually, I actually don't know any MMO that does that, but if if you want that idea, I'll license it to you for your MMO. <laughs> um, and, and then some do it where you can buy, or or you can get things like you buy, you know, you can spend five bucks and you get an additional fifty percent experience for three days or whatever. And then others actually do allow you to buy like equipment that's better than the, what other people have, and and so forth. Um, chances are, I'm guessing EA is, is going to err on the side of you can buy stuff that's not going to affect balance. Right. And one of the things I read, you know, as part of the whole community, like mailing about this, like, believe it or not, I mean, I'm still playing this game. I don't think it's terrible. Uh, the, I think that there's some of the multiplayer stuff, like the, like some of the war zones and everything are not going to be available to free to, for free to play people. So you can get the like one war zone, but you can't access all of them. You know, so yeah. you kind of east of like some of the multiplayer and, features. But and you, you won't be able you won't be able to do operations either at all. Right, but I mean, if they're doing one to fifty, you'll be able to play. You know, the whole single player uh, game that way because I mean, it only goes up to fifty. So it, currently. Yeah, and and honestly, most players who are interested in the game are probably going to be interested in that you know, one to 50 grind because that's where all the story is. It happens. Yep. So it's, it's interesting. I'm interested to see what happens. I, 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 again, I have, I have a hard time believing that they won't eventually break even with this because one of the things that EA and uh, Bioware have been so over the years is putting hooks in their game to collect market data. Like basically any Bioware or EA game you've played in the last five, six, seven years has they've been monitoring, you know, what you're doing, like what you're, what, what things you're actually doing, what things you actually spend most of your time on playing in one of their games. And, you know, some of the results will shock you. So like, I mean, like a great example is Mass Effect 3. We were talking about this before we started recording. Mass Effect 3, the late, the, the stats that came out, 42% of people who bought Mass Effect 3 actually finished Mass Effect 3. That's actually more than I would have expected. So, That's- I mean... What was surprising to me is when the Mass Effect 2 numbers came out, like something like over half of players played as a soldier, which is really indicative of, of kind of the wider appeal because you talk to, to you know, people on the RPG fan forums or, or otherwise, and most people didn't play as soldiers in the very hardcore group. Yeah. I guess the point I'm making here is that they know when... They have the monitoring in place. You know how many people are playing, what they're doing. You know what can we what can we you know take advantage of you know over the next several months here to try and make uh, some of this money back. I would be really surprised if, when all was said and done for Star Wars: The Old Republic, despite the fact that it cost you know the rumored two hundred million or whatever, I'd be really surprised if it didn't at least break even when all was said and done. Oh yeah, I think I think they're going to break even and. Uh... That's good for them if they spent that much money on the game. You know, I don't want to see anybody fail, but I think is this a black eye on them for thinking that hey, we can we can do this, we can set up the subscription model, we're going to be the next World of Warcraft, and then it just within a year you no, sort of flamed out. The stated goal was always that this was going to compete with World of Warcraft. That dream is dead, deader than a doornail. I mean, like that's definitely not going to happen. I don't think that it's a black eye, though, any more than that Mirror's Edge was a black eye. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, Mirror's Edge, by the way, not a black eye. EA, if you're listening to this, you better make Mirror's Edge 2 or I'm coming to your house. I tried the demo, dude. I hated it. But uh, Well, that's because like, you suck at things. 
Yes, I, I suck at everything. Yes. That's fine. Now, Mirror's Edge is, is not for everyone, but I thought that game was amazing. The art style, the gameplay, everything. I did like the art style. I, I just... I was talking to Dave about this before. I, I'm wondering, because to me, the model that I think everybody should be going for, because the free-to-play model is you don't pay for the box. And John pointed this out to me because I, I feel like people use microtransactions and free-to-play interchangeably, and there's a difference. When a game's free-to-play, you don't pay for the box. You pay for the microtransactions in the game. Guild Wars 2 is releasing as a $60 product, and it has microtransactions built in. And I think you get around the stigma that Dave was pointing out before that I think in the past two years it has gotten better, but people sit there and when you say that your game's free to play, they start thinking about Farmville. They start thinking about these games that aren't quality titles, which isn't the case anymore. That has changed. But I don't see what's wrong about charging people 60 bucks for the product and then supplying microtransactions. I feel like that's the way to go. See, I I think what what people argue is okay if you if you've got a subscription model, you know what you're paying for. You're paying for servers. You're paying for other things. Uh, most people that I've talked to that are not a fan of the box plus microtransaction model are that I bought this game. Why should I have to pay for additional stuff? And it's the same argument that you hear against DLC. I'm not saying that I agree with that argument. I'm saying that that's what I hear. Yeah, I, I have no desire to pay. I, I played Old Republic for like a week or two, and my time was coming to an end with that first month. And I said, yeah, okay, I'm done here. Like it, if there was – maybe there's a product out there that would make me change my mind on subscription service games, but I have no desire. Like I have absolutely no well, – what? No, you, you've actually been a big fan of, of Guild Wars since you've been playing the beta. What if Guild Wars was a subscription product? I don't know. I really don't. I think it would really change my perception of the game. I mean, I don't like I, – I will freely admit this, and I'm sure my fiancé would back me up on it if she was in the room. I don't like wasting money. See, and, what, what, one thing that's really, really interesting, when I was hardcore into World of Warcraft, I, you know, I spent – I didn't buy as many games, so I spent less money because I was only paying my World of Warcraft subscription fee. Yeah, it's an interesting argument, like, and it's one that – uh, this is like, an, you know, I'm putting the economist down. This is an old economics problem, too. It's, you know, how much can you charge people up front versus what they perceive as a long-term payment? Like, if you look at, like, something like you can play Star Wars The Old Republic under the pay model currently for, what, uh, four months will cost you, you know, like 60 bucks, I guess. How many people buy a $60 game up front and then stop playing it in shorter than four months? Quite a few, but those, a lot most of those games that are out there. Exactly, but a lot of those same people would never pay for a subscription under the idea that, like, well, it's too much money. This is an old economics problem, you know. Like, how how do you get to what's the what's the breaking point for people like projecting like their spending? So, you know, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting problem. And like Rob is saying, it's not like anybody's like completely solved it yet. I mean, like Rob really likes Guild Wars too, and you're saying like if there was a subscription model on it, you might not. Want to, you might not want to pay it. Right, because I, I know my own tendency, and I like to play a lot of different games. I mean, I, I'm the type of gamer that I, I like to have my go-to game. Like, I, when I was a huge Left 4 Dead player, I played a lot of Left 4 Dead. I had a group of guys that I played maybe an hour every night. But I still was playing other games, and then eventually I stopped playing Left 4 Dead. I know that eventually I'm going to stop playing Guild Wars 2. I don't know how long it's going to be, and I would end my subscription right then and there. So I'm sitting there going, why am I even paying for this? You know that they just brought out new DLC for Left 4 Dead, yeah? 
Yeah, I know. I, I haven't played it yet. I, I, I yeah, I know it's there, but I, I just don't. I don't know how I would respond because I like to play a lot of different games. I know some gamers, like my buddies, when they played WoW, they only played WoW. That was their game. I could not get them to play any other games. I'm looking at my calendar for the next three months going, wow, there's a lot of games I really want to play in here. And I don't know if I'm going to keep playing Guild Wars 2 during that period of time. But I like the fact that I don't have to pay extra money for that game. If I want to play it, I'll play it. You don't have to go through the rigmarole of canceling my subscription or re-upping my subscription or wondering what happens to my character if I don't play the game for a month or two. I don't have to worry about any of that. Uh, there's been, it's been a long, long time since games have started kill, since games have killed your characters if you don't subscribe. That other game we talked about earlier in the podcast, Dragon Quest X, they said that they will do it. Uh, they may do it. Uh, I think their technical term was um, A. Then, then Square is doing it wrong. Uh what is which uh, to be fair you know what i think final fantasy 11 deleted your character after uh, a certain amount of time inactive that's a very old rpg uh, mmo though so like you're saying people have gotten away from that model now whether or not final fantasy 11 still does it but i i think the important thing to take away is that this isn't the end of the old republic i i don't think it's a giant flaming failure i think it's a cautionary tale I think people, we need to stop doing the, wow, wow made a lot of money, and now we need to release a game like wow. I think the guys that need to pay a lot of attention to this right now and need to figure out what their model for making money is the guys making Elder Scrolls Online. Yeah. How do we make money off this? There's no way you can spin the Star Wars The Old Republic story in a way that says that they accomplished what they were hoping to accomplish. Like, you can say that, like, Maybe they spent just the right amount of money so that it wasn't a massive risk, and you know they're good, and they're doing what they need to do to keep revenue streams coming in. But you can't say it did what they wanted. It's just not. It's impossible to say that because they wanted it to be a WoW competitor, and it's it's just clearly not. I don't. And, and I don't know how Elder Scrolls is going to be the guy. What are they going to do differently that Knights of the Old Republic couldn't do? You know, how, I I don't know what they're going to bring that's different to the table. It's going to make them be a WoW killer. Dragons. Uh, well, but it doesn't it take place before? Well, I don't know how the Elder Scrolls timeline works, but I, I think they need to take a look at their model. How are they going to make money on this? And I think we've gotten, I feel like we've finally gotten past that age where, you know, WoW made all this money and everybody said, oh my God, we need to make a game like WoW. And you had, you know, Warhammer Online and uh, Knights of the Old Republic, and now you're going to have Elder Scrolls Online and lots of other MMOs that I'm missing in there. I think everybody needs to go, all right, We've all tried this. We've all tried the WoW model, and no one's gotten it yet. It's time to start doing some new stuff. And I think the guys that are getting away from the WoW model are the ones that are finding success in the space right now. And the guys that realize that the WoW model isn't going to work for them have rearranged, and they've made it so that their game has the potential to be profitable. I'm proud of BioWare and EA for sitting there and going, okay, this isn't working, so we're going to change it, instead of just going, eh, let's just ride this out. Let's just keep riding this out and everything will be fine. What BioWare needs to do is they need to get their butts in gear when it comes to adding additional content to their title. They said that they were going to do it in a timely manner, and they really haven't followed through with that. And if you don't keep your player base coming back... Wait, are you you talking about BioWare? Yeah. Dude, there's been like four major updates to the Old Republic since launch. Yeah, but people are still complaining that there's not enough. But people are always going to complain there's not enough, especially the super hardcore. It was like that in World of Warcraft, where yeah, it didn't it, it didn't it didn't matter how quickly you added raids. 
if your raid players are done with the content in a month and a half, you're never going to be able to create content quickly sure. enough. I don't have an answer for it. I mean, I, I don't know how you create endgame content. I mean, look, look at Diablo 3. I mean, and, and this plays into the next news story if we if we move from here a little bit. I mean, Blizzard has basically said that they're going to be completely redoing a bunch of the endgame content for Diablo 3. They're going to be fixing skills. They're going to fix the, the way that endgame content works and what people are working for and how drops happen. I mean, they're rearranging that whole game because they've run into this problem at the end game and i think there's there's an underestimation of how quickly people go through content and people are sitting here going wow we put 300 hours worth of content into this video game that ought to keep people busy for a while and your hardcore fan base is going to rip through that in no time and i think that people aren't realizing that that's a problem with these games right now and you know if people want to play a game like the old republic for a year then you have to figure out a way around that. I don't know how you do it, but they need to supply something that keeps people coming back. I have not played Diablo 3 in almost a month and a half. Did I love that game? Yeah, I had a great time with it, but I'm not playing. I'm not supplying money to the real money auction house. You know, Blizzard got my 60 bucks, and that's it. If they want to keep people coming back, they need to figure out a way to keep people coming back. That's a great example, Diablo 3. I mean, like especially in this con- conversation of uh, you know subscription versus pay up front. Uh, paying up front clearly worked for Diablo 3. I mean, you know, look at how many people pre-ordered that game, shelled out 60 bucks, and then, you know, beat it one time and never signed in again. I mean, you know, the Diablo 3, the, the Blizzard has already come out. And again, I, Rob and I were talking about this earlier. The PR guys probably hung themselves for the, uh, the guy at the uh, Blizzard, the guy at Blizzard who accidentally, like, posted this, you know, said the majority of people are playing single player which is the exact opposite of what clearly Blizzard is interested in because they want people getting going into the real money auction house and buying stuff. Uh, so I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, like, but that's a great example of 60 bucks a pop up front, and then here's microtransactions. You know, they're getting a little cut of everything that goes across the real money auction house. Yep. The more people can keep getting online, the more money they can make, and it's yeah. making bank. You want to make money, and... It seems like more and more games are trying to make money in the long term. You want people to keep playing. I mean, it's one of the reasons why people are throwing in those obnoxious, you know, oh, you can only play the multiplayer if you buy the, the game new. Otherwise, you got to pay $10 to get the multiplayer. They're doing that because they, they want people to be playing their products for a long period of time, either to invest more money into them or to eliminate the used game market. And no one's really figured out a 100% viable way to get around it. And I don't know what it is. I mean, eventually you keep producing content for a game and the money that you're dropping into the game to keep people playing isn't making back a return. So then what do you do? Is it time then to release a new game? I mean, when WoW is no longer profitable, is that when we're going to see Titan, the next MMO? Or are they going to you know, go for it sooner when WoW could still potentially be making more money for them? I, I don't know. I'm not an economist. I am but a simple caveman. (laughs) The kids don't know Phil Hartman anymore. Do you know how much that angers me? I I know Troy McClure. (laughs) You may remember me from such. Uh, What else do we have to talk about, boys? News. All right. Um, So very obviously, based on our last conversation, Star Wars The Old Republic is going free-to-play in the fall. Um, I don't know where Rob got his November date from. I can't find it anywhere, but uh, it's it's likely. I thought it was November. Everything I can find just says fall, but 
Um, fall could mean anything. If it's November, then yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's going free to play. Um, every month that you have been a paid subscriber since launch, we'll get you 150 cartel coins. Facebook. Space box, and if you uh, own the collector's edition, you will get an additional one thousand space box. Yeah, space box, space box. Um, Final Fantasy three is going to be a launch title for Oya. Oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. Have we talked about the Oya? Oh, yeah. Oya, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. Have we talked about this thing that is just going to turn out to be a giant debacle. What it's going to be is it's going to be Android. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like I don't understand why everyone's all excited about it. It's, if you have a tablet that has HDMI out and you can connect a Bluetooth uh, uh, controller to it, congratulations. You already have an OEA. Yeah, okay. Uh, but Final Fantasy 3, um, the real Final Fantasy 3, not Final Fantasy 6, is going to be a launch title for it um, whenever it comes out. And it's supposed to be March 2013. Um, I think the reason why they can do this is because, guess what? Final Fantasy 3 is already out on Android. That's and that's what you're gonna see on the Ouya. That's why I don't I, I I just don't get this. Like that's what people are gonna see. Like is, is that what people want? People want a ninety nine dollar game uh, game console to play their Android games on. Is that what it's come down to? I I think I think that it's interesting because many many uh, Android chipsets can compete. Not they're not nearly as powerful as as a modern PC or even whatever the next generation consoles are. But you can get pretty decent looking games on them. Like I've got Shadowgun THD for my uh, for my Nexus Seven, and it looks surprisingly good. I just don't see there being a market of people that were just sitting there going, "You know what? We really want we really want to play these Android games on a console just for us." Like I I, I just don't. No, I, I I agree with you. I don't see the market there either. But why not just put them on PC? Like that just. just... That that that's my thought too. Is that most of these games can be played on? If you buy a ninety nine dollar video card, congratulations, your PC can now play these games. PC can play a lot of other games too for a ninety nine dollar graphics card. I just yeah, I. Ugh. But it, what just shocked me is how people like jumped on this thing. Like other podcasts, other internet people were talking about this being like. I I, I think that I think that it's going to be pretty much the Game Park thirty two two, where it's going to have. A very very hardcore community around it, but nobody else is going to care. Oh, and, and I know we don't like to talk about this on the podcast, so we'll edit it out if we don't want to talk about it. But we all know the real reason why people are going to buy this thing is so they can. Yes, and we're not going to talk about it. Exactly. They, there's a reason that it's open, and that those are the people that are going to want to play it. So yeah. Oh, okay. All well, right. Um. I'm gonna move on, but yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on with that thing. So, oh, I don't know. Um, Bioware confirmed that they are bringing out the first paid story DLC called Leviathan for Mass Effect 3. It's gonna be out this summer. I want more Tales of the Shepherd. <laughs> Which did they cut that out of the new ending? Because I don't recall seeing it when I went through I with think the new ending. It's still there. I don't know the new. I I, I didn't watch the credits, so. But much. that's neither here nor there. But uh, so, yeah, that's coming out in the summer as well. Uh, Mass Effect 3 is going to be a Wii U launch title because, you know, people will have played the first two games. And will be able to port all their stuff over to their Wii U. Yeah, because the Wii U is getting all these amazing new titles like Batman, <laughs> Armored Edition and Mass Effect 3. And yeah, 
But yeah, so there's, but they are going to have the same kind of uh, thing that they did with Mass Effect 2 for PlayStation 3, where they're going to have the interactive comic thingy. To, to, for... I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but I'm, I'm going to. Uh, the Wii U, you know, I, it's one of those things where I, I'm sitting here going, I don't see any way in hell that the Wii U is going to be anything more than a colossal failure, but I just don't want to put money against Nintendo. Because they just they well, somehow seem to, like... Why? They've had a lot of colossal flops. Uh, not recently. I, not I think, recently, no. I, I think what's going to happen is we're so going to So they do. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we're not... I don't think this is going to be a Virtual Boy 2, but I do think that this is going to be a repeat of either the GameCube or the Nintendo 64, where the game has, or the game, the the system has a relatively small install base, but it has a very hardcore install base, and Nintendo makes awesome titles for it. Yeah, I mean, Nintendo's going to make money off this thing, but I just, with the new consoles, I mean, what what is it? Gamescom is next week, so by the people, by the time people get a hold of this podcast, we might have big announcements like I'm not, I I'm, I truly don't think any company is going to announce as, as big as Gamescom is I don't think they're going to announce the new consoles at Gamescom I don't think it'll happen but I mean I've seen weirder stuff happen I just think the Wii U is just like the Wii U is just this weird thing that's the problem is that the problem is that Wii U doesn't have an analogous Wii Sports you know like when Wii Sports <laughs> was the package game for like the Wii everybody was like I get this immediately you look at the Wii U and you're like, what the heck is this thing? Nintendo Land. What are you talking about? Nintendo Land's very easy to get. Well, and no, Dave's point is creepy. Uh, I get the <laughs> point. They have not sold this thing yet. Like even you know, even me with my sarcasm and and my cynicism directed at the Wii, I was still sitting there going, yeah, I can see people will want to pick this up. I don't get Wii U. I I just don't get it. I mean, and you know that if we're this late, you know, we're we're what, August 13th right now, and they still haven't announced a price point for that thing, you can bet that thing is going to be more expensive than people want to believe. And that price point on that thing could kill it before it's out. You know, I think that the the, the real telling thing about you can kind of predict how this is going to go. And, you know, like you said, Nintendo's proven people wrong on on occasion, but – Developers aren't really super excited about the Wii U like they were about the Wii. Now the, the Wii U doesn't need the Wii U doesn't need to be the Wii. It doesn't need to be this like revolutionary thing that everybody has one just to still be a, considered a success. But I'm with you. I don't get it. <laughs> just you know. Randy Pitchford is like the biggest supporter of this thing, but then again, he tried to sell Duke Nukem Forever to everybody. Right. I, I'm like GDC <laughs> is GDC Europe's going on right now, and nobody's talking about the Wii U. You know, I, that's that's probably not a good thing. You know, like whereas when the Wii was coming out and they had the Wii Sports and you had the kid picking up the Wii Wii mode and he immediately understands how to play, everybody's falling all over themselves, going, "This is the revolution in gaming we've been waiting for." You know, look at how obvious this is how come we never did it before yeah. the wii u nobody knows what the heck to do with this thing it's it's an ipad that connects to your tv through your nintendo yeah now microsoft's sitting there going you already have that because here's what you want you want your ipad on your lap with your smart glass while you're sitting there with the controller in your hands and then that way when you want to learn more about the mass effect universe you put the controller down and pick up your ipad <laughs> Just... to, to be completely fair you know what I Nintendo kind of did this with the GameCube initially, and some of the things they did with it were pretty amazing. Like the only thing that makes me have hope for the Wii is the asymmetric gameplay stuff, because you know what? As much as we played Smash Brothers on the GameCube, we played Pac-Man versus my friends and I in college 
day after day after day. And see, I agree with you on that because the, I do prob- the problem that Pac-Man Versus had was that that was a very expensive game if you wanted to play it the way that God intended. Right. I think there's some really cool stuff that the yeah. Wii U is going to be able to do, like with that, with exactly that type of thing you're talking about. But realistically, like, what the, what is your target audience there? And I, I just don't. I have a hard time believing enough people are going to. Well, we still don't know uh, how much the actual controller is going to be. The controller right. screen built in. Apparently, you can only have two of those hooked up at the same time. There's still a lot of nebulous crap around that right now. Like, I, to John's point, I would love to play a game like Pac-Man Versus, but if you're only limited by two of those things right off the bat, you have a problem. And then if they charge as much as I think they're going to charge for one of those controllers. Well, Pac- Pac-Man Versus, you only need one Game Boy. Three, three people played on the television screen. One person played with the Game Boy. What I'm saying is that there was a bigger barrier of entry there. Now, when you buy the Wii U, you actually do get that device right off the bat. You don't have to send somebody out to buy a Game Boy Advance to play it. I get what you're saying, though. Like that That's a really yeah. good idea, and now they've actually packaged it in with the product, so it's there for you. I think they just need that killer the killer app you know i i really do like the wii the wii sports the wii sports as much as i never got the wii and like you know i you know you could see it was going to be a smashing success right you know what oh my god you know what i bet atlas is going to do this and i was just thinking about trauma team because we is the somebody's going to be able to play surgery on the the controller with the touchscreen while other people are playing on the television and it's going to be awesome okay i just i agree with dave they have not sold that product well yet and it, well, it's because they haven't announced trauma team 2 with <laughs> that i just said well they, they they're getting close to crunch time though it's it's about time to start uh getting people excited for that thing hey, what, john you've had a couple of solid gold ideas here, yeah, here. The, we got to get these guys on the horn yep Mike, Michael Jackson, MMO, pay Michael money. Jackson, MMO, and Trauma Team 2. Wait, Michael Jackson, MMO? Oh, I, yeah. I must have zoned out when you guys were talking about that. I don't even remember. <laughs> it was one of the examples I used about paying for things in MMOs. Uh, okay. okay, I zoned out. I'm sorry. All right. No, no worries. All right, more news. Um, Code of Princess got a release date. It's going to be out in North America on October 9th. Um, if you don't know what Code of Princess is, it's pretty much uh, Guardian Heroes 2. Okay. And if you don't know what Guardian Heroes is, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't have a Saturn. Well, it's on Xbox Live Arcade, I but you don't have an Xbox either. There you go. There you go. I almost got a Saturn. Uh, Jackie was like, "What if you want?" She she asked me the damn dumbest thing the other day. She was like, "If you could have one game, what would you have?" And I was like, "You know what game I really want to play? Panzer Dragoon Saga." And she was like, "Okay, let me look on eBay." And just her eyes fucking out. She was like. If you could pick a second game that you want to play. <laughs> nice. Why is that game not on Xbox Live? Or- I don't know, because it would make so much money. <laughs> like, seriously, you have an intern port it, and nobody cares. It doesn't need to be HD. doesn't need to be fancy. You have your interns port it, and you sell it. And you make, you know, you sell 100,000 copies to all the hardcore RPG fans who never played it. You could you'll, probably it. Be able to, you'll probably be able to play it on your Ouya. Yeah, you could put it on the freaking iPad. There you go. The nice open platform. Uh, okay, here, here's the deal. Uh, between that and Konami just saying, yeah, you guys that bought the uh, Silent Hill collection on uh, Xbox 360, yeah, you're not, you're not getting it. I got that press release, and it blew me away. It's just like, what? Uh, I... 
we need to take the big Japanese developers and sit them in a meeting right now, and we need that come to Jesus meeting where it's like, you guys need to stop screwing up. Like it, it's one thing if you don't release it and you don't tell anyone, but being like, yeah, this isn't coming out. Well, and it, and you can trade the game in for uh, Frogger on PS2. Because <laughs> that makes sense. I, I, you know what? Konami is one of those companies that I just loved so much, and I just don't know what's wrong with them right now. I just I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. I make some weird choices. All right, I got two new stories left. Um, Dust, an Elysian Tale, is out this week on Xbox Live Arcade, which is a 2D side-scrolling RPG thing, which is very, very pretty. It looks kind of like a VanillaWare game. It was made by one guy. It was really cool looking. Okay. So we're very excited for that. And the last thing is we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, how uh, Epic Games kind of took the the remnants of big, huge games and made them their own. It was tentatively called uh, Epic Baltimore and is now officially Impossible Studios, and it has the best logo ever. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. That has nothing to do with the logo, but the logo was a bear with wings and a unicorn horn. (laughs) I think I made one of those in Nocturne. (laughs) I feel like I did. But yeah, so they're they're working on. Um, I'm, I'm not so excited for their first game. They're working on Infinity Blade Dungeons for iOS, which is is cool enough. I mean, Infinity Blade's cool, but I, meh, I I want them to make another thing. And what's unfortunate is I think that that Epic is very big about not working on other people's IPs. So I don't think that if we see Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning two, it's going to come from big huge games. It's going to come from someone buying that IP from Rhode Island. And yeah, I mean, on that part, I, they they just finally got around to appointing a uh, receiver for uh, 38 Studios assets like three days ago. So this process isn't going anywhere anytime soon. I, I want a game starring that bear unicorn thing. Yeah, you never know. Maybe okay. Maybe it'll be a secret character. There you go. There you go. Well, it would fit in with the Tekken crowd, wouldn't it? Which had, like, a block of wood and a bear. Temujin and Kuma. All right. So, uh, John, just... That's a big nerd card you got there, John, when you can, <laughs> you can just name the Tekken characters that fast. Well, Kuma, Kuma is bear in Japanese, so that one's not hard. What's uh, Heihachi's grandson's name? I don't know. Oh, okay, damn, I was hoping... <laughs> Yeah, like literally, I played Tekken three, and that was like it. I I didn't play many other Tekken games, so you happen to get the ones that uh, at I knew. Okay. Anything else to talk about? How's the weather? I, it's yeah. Brain. You could it, mention. Uh, I would mention the lawsuit that uh, EA has filed yes. against Zynga, which has really interesting implications. Go for it. I don't know how much time we've really got here, but the basically the what they're doing is they're filing copyright lawsuit against Zynga. Now Zynga has been hit with copyright lawsuits before from smaller companies because Zynga has made no mistake about the fact that their business model is blatantly copying game mechanics, but then using their own assets uh, and you know their own uh, free-to-play business models to make their money, but they copy game mechanics and they make no mistake about it and most of their uh, market research and development research goes into 
how to maximize pulling every last cent out of game mechanics that already work. Uh, it's actually quite brilliant, you know, in, a, if, uh, in terms of making money. Yeah, he's clearly throwing down the gauntlet here, saying that, that basically what it, the, the one that got them was EA has something called The Sims Social, and Zynga made a game called The Ville, which copies basically every single thing about The Sims Social and slaps some barely modified assets on it. And that was the last straw for EA. Uh, the copyright law is really hairy. Uh, game mechanics are not, you can't copyright game mechanics. So like that, that's why people can like, you know, redo chess or other things like that, like over and over and over again. Like you can't copyright mechanics, but you can copyright assets. And there's actually like the big phrase that you'll probably hear if you decide to start following this stuff, uh, like works like me do, is uh, a particularized expression is the defense that's usually used. And particularized expression is the gray area that the court has to decide on, which says, is a rewriting of this enough to be a particularized expression of this game mechanic, of these game mechanics that have already been, we've already seen before. So there'll be lots of, there'll be millions of dollars spent on this. The implications are massive if EA actually wins, because you're going to see lawsuits cascade in like a waterfall effect uh, if they actually win. Ah. Uh I mean, if they manage to pull that off, uh, God, if you could copyright game mechanics, right. like how far could that go? Like, it could get real ugly really fast, which is why most people don't think they can win. Like a lot of people don't think they can win, but there's just enough people saying that, you know, it's just blatant enough here with the Vill that they may be able to pull it off. They've put together some really interesting side-by-side screenshots, which they submitted in this massive court document. And you're like, holy cow, they really did not go very far out of their way to copy this. And the question then becomes, if the court decides it's close enough, now you're going to have to take all these things to court because everybody's going to want to know where the line is. I mean, and everybody's going to be willing to test their luck to find out what it is. Could you imagine this happening like back in the day with like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy? Oh, it'd be devastating. Oh my <laughs> god. Like yeah. I just got done talking about Darksiders, like uh, that game gets ripped apart by Sony for God of War and then Nintendo for I mean, what do you do cuz there's so much bleed over in the industry and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean you know, if somebody figured out a really – what about the Halo control scheme for dual-stick well, shooters? I mean, this oh, is the my thing. God. This is, the, this is the thing is that, like, it's unlikely that you'd ever see it go that far. But whenever you kind of open up the door here, the issue here really is that it's going to become even more expensive to, like, do game development because you're going to need this type of lawsuit protection. Because implicit in the idea of game design has been for many decades that you can't get sued over copying a game's ideas but you can get sued for copying their assets and their graphics and things like that. Right. So right. if EA actually pulls this off under the notion that they went one step too far, the thing that's going to cost all the money is figuring out what step is not the step you can take. That's, that's why, that's why you're going to just, if they win you're going to see lawsuits flying all over the place. I mean, I, I I'm definitely using hyperbole here when I talk about that kind of thing happening, but just good God. I mean, right. It, it, it would, it, it's hard to know. It, it, the line would get – the courts are more sane, I think, than like you know probably the public gives them credit for, especially with stuff like this because we tend to just see the headlines, the headlines of, oh, this crazy person sued this guy for something outrageous. But nine times out of ten, those things get thrown out before even the first hearing happens because the judge is like, this is nonsense, and nobody reports on that. In this particular case, 
I don't think the court's ever going to go so far as to say, uh, you know, game mechanics are copyrighted. I think what's interesting here is they may say the Vill copied way too much stuff from the Sims Social, so much so that it's it's blatant, and we find in favor of EA. If they do that, then everybody's going to want to test what the boundary is, exactly like you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw this way back in the day with all the, the Tetris clones and whatnot, and, right. and people just nicking each other's uh, game. Ah, my God. I, mean, that, I didn't realize how bad this was. Now I'm scared. It could be really interesting. Uh, now, the... <laughs> Again, I don't think you need to worry about, like, the game industry, like, dying or anything like that, or, like, you know, RPGs, for example. RPGs are a great example because there's a lot of traditional mechanics in RPGs, right, that we expect to see. I don't think you would see lawsuits to that extent, but I think you would see people really testing their luck with this guy took this aspect of the game from me and my game didn't sell so well, so I want to sue him because his did better. I think you might see some of that. You know, at least initially, if EA is able to pull this off. And the ironic thing is, most analysts think if EA wins, it would actually hurt EA in the long run because they are notorious for copying certain mechanics from better games and yeah. then making it their own. I so look, at, it, look at Resident Evil 4 and Dead Space. Right. And the way that those two games play. I mean, exactly. And now so the it, court, and, and now here, here's where I get really nervous about a court deciding this is that if you show a, a court two games that are maybe we see them as entirely different but they don't see the intricacies in that are are we willing to let a court sit down and decide oh god of war is a lot like ninja gaiden therefore god ripped off ninja gaiden the other tricky part is that the court the u.s courts have not been super good uh with technology cases they're getting better but Something like this is kind of new territory for them under copyright. Now, typically, courts, the, the U.S. courts have always, over the years, erred on the side of not uh, finding for the copyright infringement. All right, so like they tend to err on that side. But you know, some of the analysts and some of the professors of law that like have been looking at this are saying this is might just be just blatant enough, and EA may, may in fact have just enough money to actually put up a fight against Zynga. I mean, Zynga has, you know, settled most of their cases with these smaller places because the smaller places don't have resources to take it all the way to court, and they don't want to anyway. They just want the settlement. EA actually seems hell-bent on really getting a decision on this so they can kind of define where, they, where the industry goes from here. So it's going to be something to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I'm I'm officially scared of everything, and I feel like I'm living in a post-apocalyptic future. So thanks for that, Dave. I, I really needed that today. What happens, it won't be that bad for things like RPGs and stuff like that. I think you would see a lot more litigation if EA wins, because everybody's going to where's the line I can what? how far can I go before I cross whatever the court thinks the line is. But Square is going, Square's going to sue everyone who has an attack command in their game. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it might make him more money. We've seen more absurd things in patent law than copyright law. Like, you know, like that. Like, I patented the... Like, that's where you get more of the really... It's copyright law tends to not go, you know, the way... Doesn't Ralph Bear still earn money for, like, every controller ever made or something like that? There have been some bad ones. Yeah. All right, well, uh, now with fear creeping uh, through my very body and worried about my industry. Uh, I think we will leave you guys as we move on to our interview with uh, Mike over at ArenaNet. 
as he talks to us a little bit about Guild Wars 2. Hello and welcome to another developer interview. This is uh, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards, and I am joined today, who is right now hiding out in a car in South Carolina, Stephen. Uh, Stephen Myrick, Taylor on the boards. Yep. So we all sound a little crappy right now. That's because we're using Skype and we're using uh, the conference call version on Skype, and I apologize for that up and down. But we are joined today by two people from ArenaNet to talk about Guild Wars 2. Gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mike Zdrojna. I'm a game designer uh, focusing on content design. Uh, so a lot of my stuff is uh, uh, the NPCs, the events, the dynamic events, um, the renowned hearts, everything you're going to see as you run through the world. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so uh, we're going to start right at the beginning. Uh, you guys are obviously putting the finishing touches on the game, and I'm sure you're stressed out as all hell right now, and I'm sorry for that. But uh, can you <laughs> Can you guys tell us, uh, one of the big things that's been going on in the news right now is obviously a lot of other MMO developers are talking about how do you keep people playing the game, how do you keep people coming back for new content, and I uh, just wanted to ask you guys, like, how are you going to keep people playing Guild Wars 2? I mean, you, you see players burn through this content in a video game so fast, how are you going to keep them coming back for more? So I think part of it is the way that we develop content. Um, a lot of uh, the traditional MMO model has been about like you race to the end and then we, you know, create content for players at that point. Uh, with Guild Wars 2, we took a, a little bit of a different approach. We wanted to make a very social game um, uh, from the ground up, and we also wanted to make it so that the experience from 1 to 80 was a journey, not that it was like the, you know, the rush to the end before you actually got to play the game. So by spreading it around and making it through things like the level adjustment system where when you walk back to the starter area with your high-level character that will scale your character down a little bit, um, it allows you to really experience the game kind of naturally. Uh, and we've just kind of uh, built this kind of wide, diverse world that allows you know, to find so many things through exploration, through the crafting system, um, you know, layer, layer that on top with the structured PvP, with the world versus world. There's just a, a massive game there, uh, you know, for players to find. In addition to this, I mean, uh, MMOs are a service industry, so when you launch a product, the game is really just starting at that point. Um, we are going to have a live team post-ship. Uh, they're forming right now, getting ready their plans. Um, and they're going to be doing things like adding additional events to maps that are there so that uh, when players go back there either to explore or play with their friends or roll an alt, that they can have a unique experience. So they're not going to run into the same events over and over again. Um, on top of this, these guys are going to be adding things like holidays, festivals, um, you know, just general fun stuff that we want players to come back and see. Excellent, excellent. Uh, actually, I had a question regarding, uh, you, you saw a lot with, like, uh, Star Wars Galaxies and, you know, EverQuest. Uh, you know, MMOs tend to evolve a lot as they, you know, come out, even the original Guild Wars. Um, are you guys, how, how, what, what is your stance regarding, you know, based on player feedback, evolving the structure of the game? Obviously, you know, you won't get, you know, drastically different, but, you know, do you see that as something that could, happen with Guild Wars 2 or? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really up to the players. I mean, we're, we're making this game for them. So if the players want to see the, the direction of the game changed or, you know, taken in, in different ways, it's definitely something that we're very open and receptive to. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why we were very public with our, our beta weekend events and our stress tests is because we really do listen to the player feedback. 
Um, when players tell us that they like something or they don't, it's something that we, we objectively go back and look at and see, you know, are we, are we heading down the right path? Is this a new system that we need to put in place to address this? What are the concerns? So it's, you know, player feedback is, is paramount in this because they're the ones who are actually going to, you know, maintain the game. It's the community that builds, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the long run. So I think the big thing that I found when I was playing Guild Wars 2, I've been participating in the beta weekends, is how much I like each one of the classes. It's funny that I start playing as one class, and I'm like, oh, I really like the Necromancer, and then I switch over, and I really start liking the Engineer. I've actually decided that that's going to be my main uh, when I start the game. Now, how do you keep these classes balanced? I mean, we, we always hear about the Holy Trinity in MMOs and people either being healer, DPS, or tank. How do you guys make these character classes each stand out on their own outside of the Holy Trinity, but still also keep them fun to play? So part of it is that each of the, the professions kind of feels a, uh, like an archetype. And so when we're making decisions about balance and things like that, we're looking at, do these changes support the idea of what it is to be an engineer? And so we really holistically are looking at each of the professions and trying to keep, make sure that they, they maintain their individuality. Um, but at the same time, but they also have very powerful tools in their toolkit in terms of like, you know, what well, weapon skills they have, your utility skills, your traits, um, you know, your elite, like all this kind of stuff that allows you to really, you know, build your own kind of character for your play style. Uh, so it is, you know, it is a challenge, but it's something that these guys have been doing a pretty good job on. And, uh, you know, they're looking forward to what they can do with it uh, post-launch as well. I played a lot of the original Guild Wars since it launched and on and off, you know, throughout its lifespan. I haven't played recently, but was there anything from the first Guild Wars that when you were designing Guild Wars 2, you either, you know, not necessarily weren't happy with, but something that you actively set out to say, okay, I want this to be different, or we want this to be different in Guild Wars 2, and, you know, what, did you, what, what exactly did you try to hang on to from the original? Well, we love the deck building aspect where you're actually being able to customize your skill bar the way you wanted, but one of the things that we discovered was that, like, it was really easy for a warrior who had very, like, uh, weapon-specific skills to, for people to just make builds that didn't work. Like, you'd have a sword warrior who had axe skills on his skill bar. Um, and so that was kind of the, the decision why we went to the, the idea that weapons determined what your skills were going to be in those first couple slots. Um, but we still wanted to maintain some of that deck-building aspect, so that's why we, like, had the utility skills and the elite skills where players could kind of customize there. And then we added another level of depth there with the traits so you could actually kind of determine your play style, you know, based on how you were building your character. Uh, so that was one of the big things that we, we looked at and we wanted to change a little bit, but still maintain kind of the core concept that we had from Guild Wars 1. Uh, another one was Persistent World. I mean, we, we got a lot out of it, uh, we got a lot of play from how we could tell stories and things like that, but we wanted to create a very um, much more open world that like was very dynamic that was changing on the fly that you could run into other players out in the field and it would be kind of a cool thing. Um, something we just couldn't do in the, in the Guild Wars 1 framework. Uh, so, I mean, that was one of the big reasons why we, we moved on from doing the, uh, the campaign model and moving into Guild Wars 2 is because we wanted to try some new things that we just, the infrastructure wouldn't support. Um, you know, we knew we wanted to still have the same kind of structured PvP that we had in, uh, in Guild Wars 1. I mean, we had world championships back in the day, and we still want to maintain that kind of that atmosphere, that level of competitive play. So that was one of the core concepts that we, you know, we, uh, you know, worked towards for you know the structured PvP. And then we just wanted to create uh, like an open world PvP area that just had, you know, tons of siege equipment and these epic long battles 
And that's kind of where World versus World came from. Like we just we wanted to make sure that we were covering all of our bases and kind of giving players this wide expansive game that let them play, you know, where they wanted to play and choose how they wanted to play. Uh, and, you know, putting that choice back into the player's hands. Now, end game is a huge part, and you've already talked a little bit uh, about PvP. And I know when I was out in Seattle and I got a chance to see the game, uh, the PvP really overwhelmed me. I mean, I'm not a big MMO player, and I was just kind of intimidated by the whole thing. But uh, how do you guys go about creating your end game when it comes to PvP, when it comes to a character that reaches max level? Are they only going to want to do PvP, or do you have things set up for them as well? So there's a, there's a lot of different things. I mean, obviously, we've got stuff in there for the explorers. There's a lot of jumping puzzles. There's a lot of stuff for completionists. Um, we've got a lot of things that are hidden in the world, you know, through the crafting system with the legendaries that uh, we've talked about. Like, there's some really cool weapons that uh, that artistically are fantastic, but they're going to take time for players to, you know, to build and, and put together. Um, you know, we don't want to force people into PvP. It's definitely one of those things where we wanted, like I was saying about choice, like if you are really enjoying PvP, that's an option. Um, if you really don't want to touch it at all, you know, that's where the, the, the PvE environment's there. And if you kind of want to mix in between, that's why we have World versus World, because, you know, a lot of those large-scale battles are, are a lot of fun. And it's not necessarily nearly as stressful as, like, when you're going into, like, the structured PvP. Uh, there's also, like, the, the dungeons that are there. So we, we have uh, eight dungeons in the game at launch that uh, each has a story mode, which is designed to be puggable. But then each one has a, what we call an explorable mode, which is like once you've done it, then we bump everything up, like the difficulty goes through the roof, and it's definitely designed for them to be more challenging for players. Um, so there's a d- bunch of different paths through these explorable uh, dungeons and allow kind of players to kind of pick how they want to go through and see the challenges that they want to do. So there's, there's a ton of stuff that's in the game that's just layered in there for, for players when they actually, you know, when they get to 80. But at the same time, a lot of this is, you can you have access to this. You're unlocking this during your play from zero to eighty. The journey is about like, you know, the the gameplay to eighty. It's not about like, okay, now it's your eighty. Now the real game begins. Now regarding getting to eighty, you know, it, I was you know I've been following the game you know since you guys announced it, just being such a big fan of the first one. And so, you know, when you say you know the journey to eighty is, you know, part of the fun. It's not oh get to end game and then start having fun. Um, now, when you do get to the end game, what kinds of, you know, do you have something in mind for, like, progression for characters once they've reached the max level? Like, you know, is there still going to be, you know, for example, with the original Guild Wars, you could unlock skills by doing certain quests, and there was a, you know, a really big set of skills, and maybe maybe that got out of, out of control for some people. But I know for me, a lot of fun I had was, you know, mixing and matching skills, trying to come up with just, you know, crazy combinations and different builds. Um you know, once, what do you see players at level 80 doing? You know, do you see them, you know, tweaking skills or, you know, finding new skills or, the, you know, equipment-based? Like, what sort of things do you see for progression at, you know, the top tier of play? So there is a lot of, like, armor sets that are, are hidden to specific things, either whether it's through karma, through the dungeons. So there's how you're going to make your character look and how you know, you're going to feel epic about it. That is something that is that's there for players to go do. There's a lot of like, there's just a ton of gameplay that unlocks for you at level 80. Like the the battle for ore is is pretty epic. I mean, it's spanning through three different maps um, where there's these giant meta events that are all affecting each other. Um, so there's there's just a ton of things for you to go do and find. Um, and like I was saying, with legendaries, you can do some really cool like weapons and things like that. Um, so it's not that we're forcing you to like, okay, once you get to 80, these are the things that you need to go do as a checklist. There's just a lot of things for you to go explore and find. 
So Steven and I are always fighting uh, when it comes to character classes in video games uh, with Diablo. I'm a witch doctor, he's a wizard, and he's wrong. And when it comes to Guild Wars 2, I'm an engineer, and he's an elementalist, and once again, he's wrong. Uh, so now i got to ask you guys, if you were going to pick a character class, what would it be? Thief all the way. See, what's funny is I, I really struggled with the Thief when I was playing it. Um, I, I, when I played it with you guys and when I played the beta weekends, I really felt I liked the Thief, and then it felt like if I ever ran into more than one enemy, I was just screwed. And then I switched over to the Engineer because I really liked that crowd control and kind of staying back and shooting dual pistols at people. I really started to fall in love with that. So this is one of the things I really love about our game is, like, you can get a room full of like eight or nine different people and have them talk about like how each profession works for them and how they find it. And you're going to get, you know, different answers from every individual. Like for me, like there's a ton of play with the thief on like the short bow for doing a lot of AOE damage and things like that and condition based. Like you just have to be a little bit more creative with your bills in terms of how it works for certain other people. But each profession speaks very differently to, to different people. Like the necromancer isn't for me. I, I've tried it. I, I don't understand nearly the appeal that does for other people, but I've seen people who are really into it that can just dominate the game. So it's, it's nice that each profession, like it really comes down to your personal play style, how you want to play the game. And you, you're just going to find that people attach to the, the different archetypes a little bit differently. And I just think that's awesome. And that was definitely something I enjoyed about the first game. And from what I've played in the beta of Guild Wars 2, I was really enjoying. I, I played an elementalist necromancer in the original and elementalist in the second one because that's just that's how I roll. And contrary to what he said, Rob is actually wrong. But it, it seems to me that there are a lot of opportunities, even just within that one class, for playing different styles. Like, you know, uh, with the, with the lightning attunement, you know, you have like the lightning whip uh, and and so on and so forth. And it feels like you you can almost it's almost like a shooter at times for me because it's, you know, rolling from side to side and, you know, getting up close to the enemies and having the skills to, you know, knock them away or, you know, get yourself far away, it really felt like, you know, I had, a, you know, a lot of utility to play like a type of melee elementalist, whereas I've seen other people playing, you know, standing far back and just, you know, raining fire down on people. And that's definitely something I was glad to see in the beta because it was something I really enjoyed in the first one was just mixing and matching skills and just trying to see what kind of crazy build I could come up with. It, you know, it always reminded me of Magic the Gathering and Diablo, in a sense, and I was really happy to see that the second one maybe takes a little more balanced approach to that, but it, there's definitely still room there for people to, you know, try different, you know, crazy stuff out. And that's what I was telling Rob, you know, with his thief, you know, try something different. Yeah, yeah, no, that's like, that's one of the powers of the system that we've built, is like, there's there's a ton of play in terms of when you're mixing and matching. I mean, just when you layer in the trait system and... Uh, and you add that to like your utility skill combination, like you can really build some very powerful, very different, and very dynamic, uh, you know, profession combos. Uh, and then you you layer that in with the skill combo system between players, where you can have like you know somebody laying down a firewall and somebody shooting projectiles through it, and they pick up you know burning when they hit their target. Like there's just so much play there. And so that's that's kind of why we wanted to build this system that was you know it's fairly easy to understand. Okay, I have my you know my weapon determines my skills. But what, you know, what that actually translates to when you're in the game can be very dif different when you start layering all these other systems. So this easy to kind of get into but very difficult to master, I think, was something that we were really trying to hit. Now, out of curiosity, do you anticipate seeing, like, you know, future patches for the game, you know, after release? Like, do you expect to be adding new traits and new skills to every class? Like, I don't know, maybe higher level ones or 
you know, more powerful ones or just additional ones in general, like maybe new weapon sets for a wizard uh, or for an elementalist, you know, to expand what they have on offer. Do you see that kind of progression for characters after launch? So the, because the system is the way we developed it, it's really easy for us to go in and add additional traits. It's really easy for us to go in, well, uh, easy for me to say for us to go in and add additional weapons that have all those new skills and hard for the skill balance guys to actually do it. But uh, that is like the system itself, it supports that. So it is something that we're looking towards, you know, long-term what we can do to kind of help, you know, mix things up a little bit. Uh, there's a, there's just a ton of play there. And it's just a matter of, you know, as we're watching the game, as it goes live, you know, listening to the feedback from the players, there's a ton of things for us to do. So, you know, we, we've got a lot of, of, of tools in our pockets and we're just waiting to see how it plays out when the game goes live. Is there anything that you guys are particularly excited for players to see that maybe they haven't seen in any of the videos or any of the previews yet? I mean, any little scoops, any little uh, secrets that are going on that maybe you guys can tell us about? Um, the meta events and a lot of the later maps are epic. I mean, we start doing these, like, map-wide long conflicts where you have armies marching across. You know, you have crazy things with golems going on. Uh, the... Uh, the bosses that you see at the the end of the uh, kind of the starting areas for each of the five races, them plus more show up later in the game to kind of really give players the challenge. So there's 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 a ton of stuff that we're just putting into this game, just letting you know players just excited to wait and see them discover it and see what happens. And I was really glad to hear when we when we first started this interview. I just want to make sure we hit on it again. I'm really excited to hear that you guys are going to add more and more events. Uh, as you keep going, like it, it's good to keep people coming back to those first starting areas. Uh, one thing that I was really happy about with the last beta weekend was I just kind of turned tail as my char and went away from the starting char area and said, you know, I kind of want to go hang out with my human buddies for a little bit. And it was so fast and so easy. And I didn't feel like I was locked into this starting area. I felt like I could go and join my friends right away. And that made it a very pleasant experience and made it feel very much connected to other players. Yeah, I mean, like this goes back to the whole idea of trying to make a very social game. We wanted it very easy. Like once you, we've taught you a little bit about the game. Once you've seen, you know, some of the things, you know, that it's very easy for you. Just if you've got buddies that are different races, that you can hook up. Um, I mean, it's kind of the reason why, like, the way the the communication system has been built is, it's just it's super easy to stay connected to your buddies and your friends. But if you know, if you need to go help them, or if you want to go play, that's an option. And again, with the level adjustment system, if I'm on my level 60 character and you're having problems, you know, on your level 15, I can go down there. I can help you. I'm not trivializing the content, and I'm still progressing my character in some way as well. So it's it's just one of those things where we just want to make it very easy for players to find each other to group up. Um, and again, going in the, with the idea that there's no more kill stealing and things like that. Like we're just trying to make a game where you're really excited about you know other people being around you, and that it's easy for you to play with your friends. That was actually the, the ease of play was something I noticed in the beta was that, you know, with a game like, you know, for example, World of Warcraft or even my favorite Lord of the Rings online, you have this situation where you have to find where you're supposed to be at that point in time. You know, oh, I can't be in this area. It's not the right level. Or I can't play with my friend. It's too low level. Whereas when I started playing Guild Wars 2, it honestly felt like I was just exploring. Like, okay. Here I am. I'm just going to run and find an event. Oh, something's happening here. And then kind of organically, like, without me even having to, like, look at a map or a quest log, it was just, hey, there's something going on over there. I'm going to run over there. And is that – now, on the one hand, I really enjoyed that. But as we got, as I got a little further, I said, okay, is the whole game just a matter of stumbling upon events? Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if we can talk about this yet, but, you know, later in the game, you know, do you, do you 
is there more of a rigid setup for questing? You know, not not like you know, oh, here's a quest, go do this. But like, will it be a, a situation where you enter an area with an intention? You know, like, oh, I have to go help this army, and then you show up, and you know, you have a rigid sort of, here's your goal. Maybe the the way you approach that goal isn't you know rigid, but um, you know, a little more than just okay, you're in this area, wander around and find stuff to do. Well, one of the that's kind of one of the reasons why we put in the scout system. So there's a bunch of scouts that kind of point you to the various hearts, the renowned regions, that kind of gives you here's some content that's at these set levels. So you kind of know as you're progressing through, you know, kind of where the safe areas for your level are, and you don't wander off the beaten path. But at the same time, like we we do want that that sense of exploration because we think that's a very powerful kind of cool thing. The fact is very organic, that you walk into an area and you're like, oh, look, there's something going on over there. I'm going to go explore. I'm going to go play with that. I'm going to go see what happens. And you kind of get these situations where, you know, hey, I just joined these three other guys who are doing this event, and now we're wandering into an area that's way too high for me as a solo player. But because I'm with buddies, I'm with these other guys, I can now tackle this stuff. So it makes a very organic, very interesting gameplay experience that we just are letting you kind of explore and see this. Yes, we still have some guidance for it, um, you know, through, like I said, the scout system, also with the meta events that are kind of telling you what's going on for the big kind of story of the area. Um, but it really is, we are kind of just letting you kind of go play the game the way you want to. Cool. So uh, Guild Wars 2 released on, is going to release on August 28th, and people that pre-ordered the game get a three-day head start, correct? Uh, Pre-purchases will get in on the 25th, yes. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I think we're all very excited, and we wish you guys the best of luck. And, you know, I think you got a hell of a game, and hopefully it works out for you. Thank you so much. I we're just super excited to get in the game, you know, game in the hands of the players and just being able to play alongside them. 